friends, welcome. I'm Andrew Hicks, and you're listening to the Text and Context Podcast. To be here. Oh, hey, Dr. Levon. I just saw your message that the link wasn't working. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. So I just, I rebooted my phone and now I seem to be here. Oh, awesome. Well, hey, welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, please call me yeah, AJ. Please call me AJ, and my last name is pronounced Levine, not Levine. Okay, I was going to ask because I've only ever seen your name pr- uh, like printed on publication. I've never actually called it, but you prefer AJ. Awesome. A- AJ is that. fine. Yeah. Awesome. Well, wonderful. Thank you for being here, AJ. Um, I'm really excited to have a conversation. Um, so I thought we'd just start with just the basics. So who you are, what you do, where you're at all that good stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so <laughs> I, ideally, you know, when, when you interview somebody, the people who would be listening to your podcast would, would have some sense of who the people are whom you've called. Uh, but to introduce me, my name is AJ Levine. Uh, my title is the Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for, for Religion and Peace. Uh, and I also have a bunch of titles with emerita at the end of it from Vanderbilt University, where I taught for close to 30 years before retiring about a year ago. Okay. What else so do you retired need? from Vanderbilt about a year ago. I did. Awesome. Okay. I did not know that. Wonderful. Um, well, so the main thing, of course, is one of the main things I want to talk about, because I just find it so fascinating, and I think many others do too, is that you are. Jewish New Testament scholar who has mm-hmm. spent a lot of your time writing and interacting with and for Christians. Yeah, probably a little bit a over really half a century. <laughs> yeah, which is a really interesting yeah. space to navigate. Uh, so, yeah, what, what, um, how did you first become interested in New Testament um, in that study in the first place? Oh, um, I, I'm from Massachusetts, uh, and I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly Portuguese, Roman Catholic. Uh, and okay. I was very interested in, in what my friends were doing. Um, and, you know, we all went to public schools, so religious education was after school or on the weekends. Uh, and then we'd mm. start talking about what we were learning. It's like, oh, you have Moses? We have Moses. You have Adam and Eve? We have Adam and Eve. And then they had all these other people <laughs> I'd never heard of. Uh, and when I would ask my parents about that, they would say, oh, geez, he's Jewish. You know, Mary, all of them, they're Jewish. Paul, he's Jewish. Um, so I initially had this sense that, that Christians were learning about Jewish history that I wasn't learning about. Um, and then a little kid on the school bus said to me, you killed our Lord. <laughs> I thought, whoa, that's a little oh, strange. Wow. Um, yeah. And I remember saying with, with no small degree of indignation, no, I did not, because if you killed somebody, you would know. Um, and she said, yes, you did. Our <laughs> priest said so. And oh, I thought no. the reason priests had to wear these special collars uh, was because were the priest to tell a lie, the caller would choke the priest. So I, being a logical little girl, said, is the priest dead? Because this had to be such a whopper of a lie that the caller would have choked him. <laughs> and, and she says no. So, you know, by the transitive property of deicide, the priest said I killed God. The caller doesn't kill the priest. Therefore, I must be guilty. Um, I, and I started to cry. And my mother met me at the school bus and asked me what was wrong. And I said, I killed God. Um, cause I really thought I had, 
Um, and and oh, wow. she assured me that God was doing just fine, which was you know really good news to my seven year old heart. Um, <laughs> and, and and I simply could not figure out how this tradition that had you know all these Jewish people, uh, plus the same God, the one who created heaven and earth, plus the same prayers like the Psalms, uh, and plus all these like really nice things like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. You know how could this tradition be saying horrible things about me? So I'm seven years old and I started to ask questions and I'm 66 now and I'm still asking questions. And I've come to the conclusion, and I came to this conclusion very early, um, that we choose how to read. In other words, we can read the New Testament and come out as, as hating Jews, uh, or we can read the New Testament and come out as loving Jews. And, and I'm interested in what that mechanism is, uh, that people choose to read in a kind and compassionate way rather than, a, rather than an alienating and nasty way. So that's why I do what mm. I do. That's awesome. So it's it, it was started, so you see it as starting with this interaction you had with this little girl who, that's terrible that she would say that to somebody. Bruce <laughs> would say that. But uh, it started with that. It, it was, it's always been a deeply personal thing for you that. Well, um, it even started before that because the fascination was there. Like, who are all these Jewish people that, that my Catholic friends were learning about that I didn't learn about? So mm. along with looking at how to read the New Testament in a way that doesn't encourage Jew hatred, uh, the other thing that I do is I read the New Testament as a form of Jewish history. It is primarily Second Temple Jewish literature um, to recover various forms of Jewish voices. Um, it, so many people think that, you know, like on Easter Sunday, you've got the church on the one hand and you've got Jews on the other, and then they stop talking to each other. Uh, but they don't. Um, when you look at something like the book of Acts, it's very clear that Paul, after his Damascus Road experience, still considers himself to be a Pharisee, still considers himself to be a loyal Jew. And you get the same impression from his letters. So if we think about this, this early Jesus movement is taking shape within a broader Jewish worldview, that's part of Jewish history as well as part of Christian history. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I was completely unaware of some of this. Uh, I guess I was kind of aware of it until I started reading some of your work, especially. Oh my gosh. Um, what did your church teach you? Oh, terrible things. I'm, I grew up in the churches of Christ, so I won't even horrify you with the details, but. Um... No, 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 no. I have done lots of work with churches of Christ. I just did the Stone Campbell lectures uh, at Johnson University this past May. Um, I've taught oh, cool. at Abilene Christian. I've taught at David Lipscomb. I mean, so I, I kind of know the church of Christ okay. and I kind of know the more conservative side of the Stone Campbell movement. Um, I, okay. And from what I understand, there's a real strong concern for history. So yeah. I, well, I think the mistake in was them, in your personal congregation rather than in the denomination as a whole. That's true. Thank, that's very true. Um, I grew up in some of the really, really strict borderline cult-like um, factions uh -huh. in our, our fellowship. And there are some of those movements out there, um, especially so like I was told, um, you know, who needs the Old Testament? Uh, we're New Testament Christians, completely outdo with that. That's the book of the Jews, that kind of stuff. Well, how, how, um, how un Jesus and un Paul like such a comment. Yeah, is. right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, really? Right. If you actually read Jesus, it's, it's completely out there. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so speaking of Jesus, you spent a lot of your time on Jesus. So, like all these books that you released through Abingdon, so like Advent, a beginner's guide, Sermon on the Mount, a beginner's guide, parables, a beginner's guide. Um, why have you focused so much on Jesus specifically? Why has he captured your attention so much? 
Well, it's both Jesus and the gospel tradition, because as historians, we don't know if mm. everything the gospels say Jesus said or suggests that Jesus did. We don't know if he said it or did it. Um, so I'm interested in and how do you penetrate back behind the evangelists and behind whatever oral tradition that was uh, to try to listen to Jesus as a first century Jew talking to other Jews um, rather than as a post-Nicene Christian talking to people who believe in the Trinity. Um, and in doing so, I'm not interested in erasing Christian doctrine. All that stuff stays in place. I just want to take that step back, um, which is a, an act of historical imagination. So I'm interested in what Jesus sounded like to fellow Jews and why mm. some of them would have followed him. And some of them thought he was nuts or possessed by Satan. And others thought, yeah, well, that's interesting, but I got my own way of doing things. Uh, and I think if we can recover why people would have paid attention to him in the first place, uh, I actually think that would be helpful for Christians today who who have basically thrown out the Bible as, as a book of mythology or as a book that, you know, promises a bunch of stuff that it doesn't deliver on. Um, if we listen to Jesus as a bunch of first century Jews, we can find a much more profound uh, sense of ethics or community relations or questions of justice. Um, and I think those are not just, you know, Christian questions. Those are very strong Jewish questions and, in fact, universal questions. So the upshot is I find him really interesting. Mm. Mm. And it's, yeah, you know what kills me? So mm. many Christians don't think he's interesting. They think he's boring. <laughs> you know, it's, a ser it's a sermon on the Mount again. Or here's Jesus telling us how important he is, which we kind of already knew. Um, mm. and so it's, what I'm trying to do is hear him again uh, with mm. some sense of historical awareness and without the anti-Jewish upload that keeps getting attached to Jesus in Christian history. Yeah. And, and certainly you mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, and I know that's an area you've talked about in the book specifically and in the book, Jesus, uh, the Bible with and without Jesus with Marcus V. Brettler. Um, mm -hmm. That's a, that's a place where we have often talked about the so-called antitheses um, as if we are just dismissing the old Testament. Yeah, well, um, this whole thing about you have heard it said, but I say to you, which are typically that's in the Sermon on the Mount. They're typically called right. antitheses, but they're not their extensions. An antithesis would be something like you have said, do not murder, but I say to you, lock and load. That's an antithesis. Um, an extension <laughs> is, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say, don't be angry. So what mm -hmm. Jesus is doing is he's extending the Torah law. Um, so he's, he's doing what rabbinic Judaism calls building a fence about the Torah. So you have a law, you make another law to make sure you don't violate the first one. If you're not angry, you're less likely to commit murder. Similarly, the law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says don't think about it, because if you don't think about it, and that requires planning and, you know, hotel rooms or whatever, um, if you don't think about it, you're less likely to do it. Those are extensions. Mm, extensions. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I remember you using that language. Um, wonderful. I, your, your work on Jesus has been really impactful for me. I love uh, all those little introduction beginner's guides from Abingdon. They're all excellent. Thank um, you. There's, yeah. there's a new one we just released on, on miracles, which could be fun. Um, you know, Ooh, that's, yeah. that's another place where that. it's another place where so many of my friends say, you know, like, why would I pay attention to any of these miracle stories? You know, what could Jesus heal somebody who's blind? What good does it do me? You know, when, when mm. my sight is failing or Jesus helps somebody who can't walk, get up and leap around. So what what good does it do me? I'm in a wheelchair. Um, and other people just dismiss them as kind of silly stories. Um, so let's try to work our way back and see what those stories might be telling us about health care, 
and caregivers and the cost of medication um, and the importance of touching people where there might be an ick factor, um, like a person with leprosy or a person who's hemorrhaging or a corpse. Um, let's clean out some of the incorrect views uh, of Judaism that people have, like, oh, Jesus touched somebody with leprosy, that violates the law, or Jesus touches a woman who's hemorrhaging, that violates the law. There's no legal violation here whatsoever. So we can look at some of these miracles and we start learning more about nature, things like walking on water or stilling storms, about how we understand life and death, about the reactions of the survivors when somebody dies, um, about what you say and do not say in situations of sickness or of death. I mean, there's so much more to talk about rather than, you know, did he actually walk on water or did he know where the rocks were? Those are silly questions. Um, the really good questions are what are we going to do with this story or how does this story impact us or how does this story impact me personally in my own subject position? Yeah, I can think of many ways of what you just detailed about the miracles would work in a pastoral circle. Absolutely. Um, thinking about touching people and people say all sorts of stupid things at funerals. So that one hit home. Uh, oh, yeah. Like good. God needs another angel. God, oh, good. want to no, throw something. Yeah. Shut up. Don't say that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, uh, man, that's. I'm gonna have to look into this miracle one. I didn't know that one was coming out. Uh, Just came out. Has it already come out? Just came yeah, it's, out. it's okay. like a baby book. It's it was out like a week ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, so for real, very very recent. Okay, I'm gonna yep. have to look that up. Awesome. Um, okay, so I'm curious. Th this came up in my mind while we were talking about like the Sermon on the Mount and certain Christian interpretations of Jesus. So. When you look at the modern Christian landscape from your perspective, what things, what uh, groups, what uh, strands of thought do you think are, are healthy and are kind of like tapping into something good? And which ones do you see as more destructive? Like, mm, that, that's, not really, that's not really hitting it right there. Like, are there certain yeah. um, strands or Well, I've, or I've already just issued an, an apologia for the, the general Christian church, Churches of Christ. Um, yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's really hard to say, here's a denomination with problems. Uh, I think what typically happens is when you have undereducated clergy, uh, bad things happen. Um, and when you have uh, on, the, on the liberal side, where a number of these like mainline denominations, they really insist on clerical education. They insist that their ministers have a, a master's of divinity degree, which in the United States is a three-year master's program, at least three years. Um, it, so many of these liberal churches are so interested in making Jesus the social justice warrior. And I'm all for that. I think social justice is a great idea. Um, the way they do that is to make Judaism represent whatever's wrong in society. And then Jesus comes and corrects it. Um, and I don't think here the end, which is social justice, justifies the means, which is bearing false witness against Jews and Judaism. So the damn thing is, can I say damn on your podcast? I mean, it's probably not a good word. Um, this, this, thank you. <laughs> the sad thing is that um, schools of divinity that train ministers, for the most part, do not do anything to provide ministers any education about what Second Temple Judaism is like. Um, and if you don't do the history, if you, get, if you get the history wrong, if you get Judaism wrong, you're going to get Jesus wrong. And mm. that just happens. It happens across the board. Because ministers are not well-educated. Hmm. I would say, by the Absolutely. way, the same thing about Jewish clergy on the other side. Uh, most rabbis do not have really strong background in Christian origins or Christian doctrine. 
Um, so I've also heard, although less often because Christians don't show up in Jewish scripture, but I've also heard rabbis and Jewish religious educators make ignorant comments about various types of Christianity because mm. we, we're just doing a lousy job of educating clergy. Mm. And that, that is, that's interesting in the route with the rabbis as well. Yeah. Cause so, there's no requirement, right? It's go to, go to seminaries and say, uh, oh, you're studying to become a Christian minister. What do you know about second temple Judaism? Uh, and you might get, Oh, well, there are Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots, and then there's Jews all the way down. So there's, there's no real sense of the context. It mm. seems to me that if one wants to say, I love Jesus, or more, I worship Jesus as Lord, you'd want to know something about the social context in which he did his ministry. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So then studying Second Temple Judaism is not just some uh, lofty ideal for the ivory tower, but it has really practical implications for interfaith dialogue, too. Well, it's got practical implications for interfaith dialogue. It's also got practical implications for what you say in your Sunday school and in your, in your Sunday sermons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a both And if I need that, I can look into the, G the Jewish annotated New Testament. Yes, you can. For, for <laughs> which, which you would I, use the second edition from 2017. We have to do yes, we have to do a, a JANT three. Uh, oh, really? Because because the Jewish annotated is key to the New Revised Standard Version, and now there's the NRSV UE, the New Revised Standard mm -hmm. Version updated edition. So we have to rekey. Um, so Mark Brettler, my co-editor, and I. Have already been in conversation with Oxford University Press, and it looks like we'll have a third edition sometime in 2027. Okay, wow, that's that's a little bit out. Are the, well, so, yeah, because it takes three to four years to put this thing together. I bet. Well, I was going to ask. So it sounds like there will be some some significant revisions in the third edition, then not just at some least, minor touch-ups. Right. In order to do this legally for Oxford, we have to change out at least 25 percent, preferably 30 percent of content. Um, so we'll have different annotators, in part because some, some annotators have died, and in part because some of them don't want to do a third edition. Um, we'll change out some of the essays. There are a number of younger scholars coming along, Jewish scholars who are competent in Second Temple Judaism, and we want to bring their voices in. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it will be changed. And, and what we did when we went from the first edition, which was 2011, to the second in 2017, is we listened to people who wrote to us. You know, mm. uh, the book is being used in college classrooms and even in some seminary classrooms, which is fabulous. Say, so we need more on this, or we didn't understand that, or can you give us an article on something else? So we know where the need is, and in each subsequent edition, we can address those, those ongoing needs. Excellent. Yeah, one of my New Testament professors recommended the Jewish Annotated New Testament. To fabulous. Me. So, And I, I use it in my Sunday school prep, so... Good. I'm, uh, yeah, wonderful. Good for you. It's good. Um, I I love the Jewish annotated New Testament because it has upended so many assumptions for me. That's part uh, of the point. Absolutely, and so, the essays are like a fourth of the book, maybe. Yeah, maybe not um, a fourth. And, and, and it's a big chunk, not, right? It's it's a lot, and they're not super technical. Um, no. So if you want to know about you know the temple or the festival calendar or who the Pharisees were, we got stuff mm. for you. Oh, so there's this brand new book that came out on Pharisees. It came out from Erdman's Press in November of 2021, um, which I co-edited with Joseph mm -hmm. Sievers. Um, and that's now being translated into German, which is really pretty cool. Um, that is cool. 
but it's, you know, like we, we keep learning new things. And as we bring in people with different expertise and allow them to have conversations with each other. So somebody who works on Dead Sea Scrolls talks to somebody who works in rabbinic literature, talks to somebody who works in, in the Pauline epistles. You start seeing new things and then scholarship develops. Mm. Mm. So what kind of new things are we seeing with the Pharisees then specifically? Because that's a that's a subject where they're always kind of caricatured rather than yeah. actually historically described. You know, I've always heard, don't be a Pharisee. As a, yeah. That's well, like so like it's like you might be a, right. So think, right. You might be a Pharisee if right. You actually care about what God wants you to do. Um, you might be a Pharisee if you invite Jesus to dinner because um, that happens three mm. times in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you might be a Pharisee if you're interested in making the tradition more egalitarian by taking the holiness that the priests practice in the temple and bringing it into the common household. That's why they wash their hands. And it turns out, by the way, under COVID, they were right about washing their hands. <laughs> Who knew? Um, uh, so That's it fun. turns out that Pharisees are not these, these kind of strict, um, niggling, um, Christians typically use the word legalist, um, which they don't actually define, but it's, it, it has a bad connotation. Um, and it turns out from all the sources we've got, in fact, they're not very much like that at all. Um, Jesus sometimes comes off on the more conservative side. On the divorce issue, he sounds much more like the Sadducees. Um, on the washing hands, which is part of the tradition of the elders, he sounds much more like the Sadducees who wanted to retain priestly authority and priestly rituals for themselves. So we have to even have to go in and start looking at who's the liberal and who's the conservative here. Um, mm. And what exactly is it that the Pharisees are trying to do? Um, we can also see as we look from the Gospels, let's presume that Mark is the first gospel and Matthew used Mark, which, which unless you're like a fundamentalist, you're going to say that's probably true. Um, mm. We can watch Matthew add in Pharisees where they are not in the Markian context. Um, to see how Matthew, for example, is probably struggling with local Jews who were not Jesus followers. Um, and they've got some credibility. You know, they can read the Hebrew. They've got longevity. They've got pretty good answers like, you know, how come your guy is God if the world is still a mess? Um, you know, where's the Messianic age? Um, so you can see Matthew using these, the, the character of the Pharisees in order to convince his own readers um, that you don't go the Pharisaic route, you go the Jesus route. So we can mm. see this in terms of history and in terms of apologetic. Okay, By so the that's way, interesting. So Matthew he, does set up kind of a dichotomy. At times. Oh, yeah. So, mm. I mean, for example, um, in Mark, when Jesus is teaching in the temple, I'm in Mark 12 here, um, a scribe comes up and, and liked what Jesus was saying and says, hey, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Which is a really good question because there were 613 of them and Jews were, you know, wondering, you know, do, do you get it down to 10? Do you get it down to three? Do you get it down mm -hmm. to one? And if it's one, which one is it? I mean, this is something people worried about. Mm -hmm. um, and Jesus doesn't actually answer the question. He gives two, right? Deuteronomy 6, love of God and Leviticus 19, love of neighbor. And the scribe says, fabulous answer, right? And Jesus praises him and says, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. Great story. So Matthew mm -hmm. takes that same story, except it's no longer a scribe. It's somebody sent from the Pharisees. And there's no acclamation of Jesus as being a good teacher. And Jesus doesn't acclaim the guy at the end as being not far from the kingdom of heaven. So mm -hmm. Matthew takes a Markin story of a, a scribe whom Jesus affirms and sets it up as a negative Pharisee story. And you can watch this. Hmm. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what you do. And, and very often, the closer you are, the, the, the more rancor there is between you. 
um, Freud calls this the narcissism of minor differences, right? Because um, you wanted to find yourself over against that other group that looks like it's got some sort of credibility. Um, so you malign the other group. Nothing new there. Hmm. So then I'm thinking, so as a Christian pastor and Christian reader of Matthew, yeah. how, what, what advice do you have for me and, and for like people like me about reading Matthew and s appreciating his artistry where he sets up like this, this uh, uh, debate between Jesus versus Pharisee. Yeah. How do I take but, that without being, um, <laughs> I'll say, how do I do that without being a legalist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who, who, who uh, you know, uh, throws around terms like legalist, right? How yeah. Do or I, how, right. How, how do, do you that? do this without bearing false witness against the Jewish tradition out of which Jesus comes, right? And, and within which go. he remains. Um, yes. Well, I mean, I, I'm inclined to read Matthew against Matthew, which is, which is a typically biblical thing to do. I mean, it's, so the Bible gives mm -hmm. you various perspectives on the same thing. You know, Jonah says, oh, look at Nineveh, they repented. Nahum says, look at Nineveh, they're screwed. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> these, these two books yes. are like bookends, right? Yeah, um, and you can, you can go either way on that. Um, and, and we get various ways of, of how do we understand these texts? Um, and to be Israel, and that's a role that the church has claimed in terms of a new Israel. I'm not sure true Israel quite works, but you know, this, this being grafted in to the root of Israel. Um, well, one of the things you do is you wrestle with the text. And if you don't like what the text says, you've got to figure out some way around it. Um, so what I tend to do, I wrote my dissertation on Matthew. So I've been talking to Matthew okay. for a very, very long time. Cool. And I will read Matthew against Matthew. It's like, Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, you said, don't call anybody fool and love your enemy. So why don't you let your rhetoric live up to this high standard you set up right at the beginning? Ooh. Matthew fails to do that. Um, and when my students say, wait, you know, but Jesus said it, it's in red letters. Um, it, that gives us a form of bibliolatry where you wind up worshiping the Bible rather than worshiping mm. that to which the Bible points. Whatever the Bible gives us is imperfect. Um, and for all those folks who are, who are going to cite Timothy about it's all God inspired and all that. Yeah, I mean, you can be inspired, but you can still get some things that are a little bit screwy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I, I find that really helpful. The the red letter thing, I, I, I hear that a lot. Like uh, there was a small movement that went around for a bit, but it, it didn't last. Red letter Christians, where they yeah, say was, the red wasn't letters that Tony Campolo's group, by the way? Yeah, Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. I think. Yeah, I mean, so on the whole, they're, they're very well intended and they certainly understand Absolutely. justice. Um, and I love but, Shane Claiborne. But. but we always have a problem trying to work our way back behind those red letters to figure out what Jesus actually said or did. Um, so the red letter Bible people wind up being their own form of fundamentalism. Um, and what also happens, oh, no matter how well-intended they are, and I think they're really well-intended and they did some wonderful things, um, is it leaves, out, uh, it leaves out what we might call the action of the Holy Spirit. So Christianity, as I understand it, is not Jesus said it, I believe it, and then I'm done with it. Because um, that puts the spirit out of business. Um, and what John mm. suggests about the spirit is the spirit gives ongoing guidance for interpretation. Um, and that would also include ongoing guidance for interpretation of the words of Jesus. Mm. Otherwise, you don't need a spirit. You know, you got the creator, you got the redeemer, you're done. Um, mm. so, so where's that sustaining and where's that ongoing revelatory material?
And that's, that's, good. that's, that's interacting with the text. So, I mean, let the spirit do its job. That's good. Wow. You sound like you understand Christianity better than a lot of Christians I know. Well, I'm, I'm going to talk to them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I talk to them a lot. Um, and, and I've been blessed in that they talk to me. Yeah. Um, and I try to talk across the Christian spectrum, which is why I'm more or less fluent in, in Stone Campbellism. Um, you know, I can also talk Disciples of Christ Christian Church, which is not quite the same thing, but had the same origins. Same origins, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. Because I, I like the idea of, of meeting people where they are denominationally. You know, Cumberland Presbyterians are not PCA and they're not PCUSA. Uh, and yeah. they're not Dutch Reformed, but they're, they're all part of the same branch, right, or the same root. So figure out what, what each is doing. And then with my students who come from a variety of denominations, begin by looking at their own resources. What has your church taught you? Um, and the fact that all these denominations exist um, can be seen, pres presuming they're doing the right thing, as part of that action of the Holy Spirit. Because there were certain things that are needed at certain times. That's good. Yeah, I, different... different uh groups have different strengths and different weaknesses and they all bring something valuable to the table when we interpret. Yeah. And it's also the case that people who are in those denominations don't always agree with everything the denomination teaches. Oh, of course. Yeah. Right. And, and you're a good example of that, right? Here's how you were raised. Here's what you think now. Oh, but it is not like you said, well, let's chuck the church. Mm. Yeah. I didn't consult somebody. I just, yeah, that's good. That's really good. The Holy Spirit working to help us interpret. I, li I like this. I've heard you say several times this phrase, bearing false witness, which I find interesting because you wrote an article in the Jewish Annotated New Testament about common errors made about early Judaism. Yep. Uh, what are some of those common errors that you tend to see? <laughs> oh, that, that Judaism looks like the Taliban and Jesus invents feminism in the pantsuit. Um, oh. that, all, right, that all Jews are interested in a militant Messiah and they rejected Jesus because he talked about peace. Uh, that Jews equated wealth with righteousness and poverty with sin and Jesus flips the table on that. It's highly not true. Um, uh, what else? That Jews are legalists and Jesus basically says, you know, love God, love neighbor, you know, be happy and everything else will take care of itself. Um, as opposed to Jesus making the law even more strict by his extensions of it. Um, that purity laws are bad and Jesus does away with purity, as opposed to what's clear in the Gospels is that Jesus spends a lot of time restoring people to states of ritual purity, which is by no means doing away with the purity laws. Um, so it's just a matter of reading closely. And then I read a lot of sermons and I read a lot of student papers. And oh, my gosh, I read Sunday columns in the newspaper where people keep getting it wrong. Um, and I keep writing to these folks saying, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. Um, and sometimes I get a lot of pushback. Um, but very often people write back and say, you know, thank you for taking the time to write to me. And I never thought about it this way. And yeah, I, I think you might be right here. Or at least let me think about it. Mm -hmm. um, so when I see something in public that, that's bad or when people send me stuff because they do, um, then I write letters. Um, and sometimes I get my friends to write letters. If there's a particular denominational connection, I'll call it my, my COC friend or my Presbyterian friend or my Methodist mm -hmm. friend and say, here, you, one of yours, you take care of this. Um, and I, you know, it's not like I'm going to take out an ad on the Times or do a video on this. Um, you give them a chance <laughs> to make the correction, right? 
what you said was said in ignorance. You did not mean to be anti-Jewish, but now, but the effect is the same, even if you didn't intend mm. to be anti-Jewish, it is. Now go correct it. Um, mm. And sometimes people actually step up and do that. And that's mm. the Holy Spirit at work. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds more like your response to them sounds more like Jesus than the responses that I often get that are very angry. Oh, yes. Yeah, Matthew people 18, get something right. they don't like. Yeah. Matthew 18, you've got a problem. You talk to the person privately. If that doesn't work, you bring a couple of others. If that doesn't work, you send in a committee. And if that doesn't work, um, you basically banish the person. But as Matthew says, you make that person to be like a Gentile and a tax collector who are precisely the people you want to evangelize. Mm. So you disfellowship, but you don't let them go. Mm. Disfellowship, but don't let them go. That's a good line. Man, I'm a preacher. That's, that's going to make it into a sermon sometime in the future right there. Oh, that's Matthew. I like that. That's just Matthew. That's I didn't good. make that one up. That's Matthew. No, but you, you phrased it well. I'm gonna, Thank you. I like that. Good. I like that. That's really good. You're very pithy. You, very, you have a lot of good little one-liners <laughs> as you've read Jesus. It's good. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so I'm curious, AJ. So mm -hmm. um, what? Uh, there, there are different practices of Judaism today, kind of like the Christian denominations. What, what branch, what area do you find yourself in? Uh, I am a Actually. member of a modern Orthodox synagogue in Nashville, Tennessee. I am not Orthodox in practice. Um, so that when my okay. husband and I do go to services, we, plug, we park about two blocks away, which kind of gives the illusion that we walked. <laughs> we live to work okay. out. You know, uh, I, why? Because I like the liturgy. Um, I like the congregation. I like the rabbi. I like the Torah study. Um, mm. Uh, and when I'm in the building, um, you know, I act as everybody else in the building would do, which is you're, you're an Orthodox Jew. But when I leave the building, I'm just me. Uh, mm. The congregation is just delighted that my husband and I show up. <laughs> you know, and at some point we decide we want to keep kosher or move closer to the synagogue so we don't have to walk on the Sabbath. You know, we might do that, but it's not really in the courts. Mm. So you can That's do this in Judaism. You can be a member of a, a particular set denominations, the wrong word. Um, you know, yeah. whether Orthodox or Reform or Conservative, but then it's kind of like, what do you do at home, which is so much more important? Um, mm. how, how do you identify with the community? So within my synagogue, which is an Orthodox synagogue, we have Sabbath observant, kosher keeping Orthodox Jews who are probably atheistic. They're not oh. sure there's a God, but they're, you know, the prayers are sustaining mm. and the community is sustaining and, and the, the God thing mm. is not as important as as the community is, or as the Torah study is, or as the ethics are. Mm. Because to be Jewish, is, it's not just a religion, it's to be a member of a people. Mm. Absolutely. That's fascinating. That, okay, I think I've heard you say before that um, uh, you can't, uh, let's see, Judaism is about practice, Christianity is about belief. That primarily although it's, it's you like know that. judaism also has some belief stuff in it and christianity certainly has practice uh but it's a matter of where you start uh mm. for paul you know christ comes into your heart and then and he's talking to gentiles here you know to, to pagans so once you accept christ you stop doing certain things like you know going to pagan temples or eating meat offered titles um and you do do certain things like worship the god of israel and form this new community um so, I mean, there is stuff that gets done. Jesus is very clear about why stuff is important, like uh, Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. I think Jesus is much more concerned about what people do than what people believe. Um, 
but as the church developed, it was primarily a belief system. Jews were an ethnic group. You know, if your mother's Jewish, you're Jewish. It's nothing. It's like being um, Canadian or Kenyan or Mexican, right? It's an ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So you're already in the system anyway, and therefore what you believe matters less, right? You can be an American citizen. What you believe matters less because you're already right. in the system. That is, by the way, why Jews can argue so much. Um, because mm. at the end of the day, you're still Jewish, right? They can't throw you out. You're an ethnic group. It's like saying you can mm. no longer be Italian. I mean, that would make no sense. Um, uh, oh. So therefore, when Jesus argues with fellow Jews, that's a very Jewish thing to do. Um, the church, for the most part, doesn't argue that much. They either burn you with the stake or found a new denomination. <laughs> that's uh, so true. Right, because it's based on belief. So you don't want to argue too much because if you argue too much, you're a heretic. Mm. Mm. I think argument within a family is a really healthy thing to have. Absolutely. Um, and rabbinic sources talk about, there are different types of arguments. The, the rabbis talk about arguments for the sake of heaven, um, which is the argument, say, between the, the first century Jewish leaders, Hillel and Shammai. Uh, and then there are arguments that are not for the sake of heaven, which is like between Moses and Korah. Um, but there are certain things that are worth discussing and even worth arguing about, whether it's today abortion or gun control, um, or uh, who's going to run for the election. These are important things to talk about. And it's important to listen to people who might disagree with you to try to get a sense of where they're coming from. And to recognize that people who might really disagree with you on what you consider to be central image, central issues, are also in the image and likeness of God. Mm. That's how you argue, because you're all part of the same people, and you have to keep that together. Absolutely. We find truth in the argument, not necessarily in the arguing itself, not necessarily the outcome. Well, so. you, you may. I mean, you may find truth, but you may find a heightened awareness without necessarily getting to that truth point mm. in the, oh, I never thought about it that way. Now, let me think about that. So your disagreement becomes more informed where the disagreement yeah. might say, I, I disagree on this particular fundamental issue, but... Um, I might agree with you on what are we going to do about this. So I disagree with you on abortion. But I do agree that there has to be better prenatal care for, for pregnant people and better care for babies after they're born. So maybe we can work together on that. Um, I disagree with you on gun control. But I do agree that too many people are being killed by guns. So what are we going to do about educating people to keep their guns locked? Um, and what sort of, you know, is open carry a good idea? And should there be places where guns should not be present? Um, or how do we get more, how do we get guns off the streets or out of the hands of people with criminal records? I mean, so you can always figure out some third way of trying to get at the issue where people who have opposing views might actually be able to work together rather than just demonize each other and go off to mm-hmm. their own little sandboxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what I'm hearing you say is uh, much of our political landscape could learn from our Jewish friends how to have a good argument. Um, yeah, if you do it right. If you do it right. If you do it right. It's not as if Jews always get it right. But if you do it right, that's not a bad argument to have. But mm. you begin with the idea that the person across the table is also in the image and likeness of God. That's really hard. But if you start there, you're less likely to wind up throwing things at the end of the day. So this conversation and debate, this is also what that the this is what the content of the Bible with and without Jesus was, was 
setting up the discussion in a healthy way between Jewish and Christian readings of the same text. Well, that's what Mark and I are trying to do, but we're not setting it up as a debate in the sense of one's right and one's wrong. Right. Um, we're saying it, it, Jews and Christians will read the same text differently, whether it's you know the creation narrative or the creation of humanity or uh, the so-called suffering servant in Isaiah 53 or Psalm 110 or whatever. Um, to say, well, it, here's the Jewish starting point and, here, and here's where that starting point gets you when you follow up that path. And here's the Christian starting point and here's what that gets you if you follow up that path. So it's not a matter of right or wrong. And that's why it's the Bible with and without rather than with or without um, mm -hmm. to see the logic in both forms of reading. And for me and for Mark, um, you know, two Jews who teach Bible, um, it, this was also helpful to us because our students and people who write to us on the Internet or on Facebook keep saying, well, gee, AJ, you know, if, if you just read your Old Testament, good Christian term there, if you just read your Old Testament, you would see it, how it all points to Jesus. And then we guess, no, if you actually read it through Jewish lenses, it doesn't point to Jesus at all. Um, so now we have a book. So instead of having to write in a long email, I can just say, here, go read this book. So it's very practical for us. It saves me time. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you say, I think I'll use the phrase moving from polemics to possibilities. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, because yeah. there, there's no reason to, to have these arguments because they're not going to get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what apologetics generally does is just solidify the home base rather than convince somebody who's, who needs convincing. Absolutely. Because any, anybody can write apologetics. You say, yeah, I'm right. No, I'm right. And then there's no discussion. Maybe you're right yeah. and I'm right too, even though we don't agree. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I am fascinated and intrigued and have taken notes that I am going to use for all sorts of purposes. <laughs> <laughs> and I've really enjoyed the meandering of our conversation. Um, so thank you for entertaining my meandering. Um, oh, biblical studies should always be entertaining. I think Jesus was entertaining. Oh, absolutely. I think the parables are funny. I think some of his conversations with his disciples, particularly in Mark, are kind of funny because the disciples are such adults. Um, <laughs> you can read that yeah. Acts is really funny in places. Um, oh, Paul like has, where, are you, where are you thinking of an Acts? Oh, um, the, the exorcism of the seven sons of Sceva, where the demon says, you know, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but, but who are you guys? I mean, I oh, think yeah. That's funny. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I, I mean, Ananias and Sapphira do drop dead, but it is kind of a funny scene, right? You lied to the church, boom, you're dead. Um, <laughs> so if you think about these stories as written not only to educate, but also to entertain, um, which I think a great deal of the Hebrew scriptures does as well, mm -hmm. um, then we can get a better sense on why people found this stuff interesting. Certainly. Absolutely. Yeah, and you and you've made it interesting just from your perspectives and and the uh, the various books that you've written, the invitations to and introductions to. Um, I, I feel like the Jewish annotated New Testament, or what you've done in all your work, I feel like it's bringing out texture in the mm -hmm. text rather than yep. flattening it out. And um, I I grew up flattening the text, but. I feel like this just adds a lot of texture. I can rub my hand across it and feel all sorts of things. Oh, that's a lovely um, image. I like that. Going on. And uh, your, your perspective in particular is just fascinating to me um, as a, a New Testament Jewish scholar. Uh, and so I, I just wanted to wrap up our conversation here near the end with um, 
what what is your best advice suggestion to Christian pastors like me studying the New Testament from your perspective what what do you most wish we would know what do you want us to, to I want understand? you to start I want you to start making Judaism look bad in order to make New Testament figures look good that's mm. easy I can do it and if I can do it and if I'm not and I'm not a Christian then clearly Christians can do it you know to have Stop. something that's new is not does not necessarily say that the bad is awful um so you just build on it and you recognize that, that jews don't stop thinking in the year 30 right i mean they they do continue mm. um you recognize the pluriformity of, of early jewish practice and belief um you recall the horrible things that uh, followers of jesus have done to Je jesus own people and you make sure that you don't perpetuate that awful system that would be nice absolutely then i could retire then you could retire <laughs> well here's to a world where that will be the case <laughs> um, amen i i hope that is the case i i will seek to do that i have read some pretty good books by this one this one strange scholar that used to teach at vanderbilt you've probably heard of him so. yeah and now teaching at hartford so i'm teaching every june um, one intensive course per year. So in June of 2023, oh. I'll be teaching Matthew. Um, and we do this uh, both on site and online. Um, oh. So if people want to come study Matthew with me, you can do it either to enroll in the class or as an auditor in June. And that would be great. Oh, I'm looking into that. Yes. <laughs> that would Fantastic. be good. That Fantastic. would be good. Let, let pastors learn something about the gospels from an historical perspective and a pastoral or homiletic perspective um, and as a type of first century Jewish history. Nothing wrong with that and all to the good. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I have got to wrap it up there. Um, thank you, AJ. You're for very welcome. Talking with me today. I've really enjoyed this. Um, you're, you're so crisp and clear. I, I love it. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you, you thank for your you. kind words. Pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, have a great afternoon. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Text and Context podcast. If you're interested in some other great content, then you can go over to my website. It's txtandcontxt.com. It's text and context without E's in it. So again, that's T-X-T-A-N-D-C-O-N-T-X-T dot com. Head on over there and check out a bunch of free resources and plenty of articles about a wide range of topics, as well as book reviews and plenty more. Thank you for listening. <laughs>